Hi, I'm Mel. And I'm Sass. And we're going to take you away from the play. It's another week, another podcast. Mel, we're back. How's it going? I'm doing well. You know, I feel like it's Groundhog Day. Just another morning in my apartment. (laughs) But the weather has turned. It's looking sunny out. I am fixing my bike. I'm pretty excited. Oh, that's fun. That's fun. You know what else is fun? The guest that we had on today. Not to talk about a super fun topic, but an important one and a very interesting conversation. So who do we have on the podcast this week, Mel? We had Daniel Silovsky. He is a PhD candidate at McGill University with the Department of Sociology. He studies violence, masculinity in sports and social media. A lot of intersectionality between those topics and um it was a very exciting topic well exciting was probably the wrong word it was an exciting conversation and an unfortunate uh, topic but saps what did you think of our conversation with daniel i mean i thought it was very interesting and it was kind of nice to talk to uh someone who works in academia about these issues because i mean oftentimes like you know when it comes to these research papers they're not the most accessible um and you know we kind of talked about that before we started the recording with him about you know it's like he's published quite a few papers or he's been part of a lot of papers and you know it's not always easy to access them and so it was kind of nice to to talk to him directly and to have him kind of break it down because the language itself is not always accessible Mm -hmm. i think for you and me mel like since we both kind of have a bit more of a research background especially you uh we're able to kind of have a better grasp uh, of the terminology, but yeah. it was nice to hear it from him, have him break it down, talk about issues uh, in sports. It was just a really refreshing conversation, a serious one too, but like we said, it was an important uh, important chat that we had to have. Yeah, and I mean, these conversations need to occur and you know, I hope it happens, you know, more predominantly, you know, between among friends or within social media in a positive way. But uh, it's uh, important to address these issues, uh, you know, violence against women. There's been some, some tragic stories coming out as of late and, you know, it wasn't in, involving sports, but uh, it, it does occur and it, it needs to be discussed, you know, um, and we need to find solutions. And I think the first step towards finding a solution is really just talking about it and having an open discussion about it. So Mm -hmm. we hope you enjoy it and we would love any of your feedback. Welcome back everyone. We are so excited to have Daniel Solovsky on with us. I have to thank our friend Ryan for introducing us. Uh, We had a a social distance barley pop, and he was telling me about your work, Daniel, and and the work of your partner, and you guys both seem like incredible people, and we just had to have you on, so thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. This is uh, really exciting, one of my first podcast hits, and excited to be here speaking about sports with uh, with both of you. 
Excellent. So for the people, you know, you're currently a PhD candidate at McGill. You're studying violence, masculinity, social media and sports. Um, in general, can you just tell us like what drew you to this area of research and maybe just give us like an umbrella view of, of your research interests and then we could dive into the details later. Sure. So I have a bit of a, an interesting path and background to get to where I got in my academic life. So I actually went to law school right after CJEP here in Quebec, uh, really hated it a lot and decided <laughs> I wanted to do something that I would actually enjoy. And I thought, what do I enjoy? What do I spend a lot of time doing in my spare time, reading about, thinking about, and that's sport and professional sport, amateur sports. So I actually did my master's in sport management at Brock University, really fell in love with research and teaching and the whole idea of higher education. Well, the good parts of higher education. But yeah. Um, yeah, I did some work in analytics and kind of performance analytics. So looking at what factors influence success for NBA players, for people who are being drafted to professional leagues, what are the factors that kind of influence who's going to be successful. And while that was very enjoyable, I found that for me, at least, I didn't think it was kind of important enough to be something that I would devote my career to studying. So I wanted to link my interests in um, the social world, in inequality, in kind of social problems that we have in the world with my my love of sports. And that got me towards working on kind of criminal behavior, deviant behavior in sports. A lot of that, I think, stemmed from just seeing the real crisis that kind of still goes on, but was especially poignant in like the mid-2010 kind of years, 2015, 16, 17 era of violence against women in with professional athletes, amateur athletes, uh, Olympic athletes, et cetera, and just how prevalent that was, how it was being dealt with, how it was being talked about. And I saw this as an area that needed and still needs further study. So that's sort of how I got to there. Um, and you also asked if um, the, the research now, so basically what I study now is criminal and deviant behavior in sport. And I say criminal and deviant because there's a lot of behavior that is definitely negative and has a, a negative result on a lot of people and on the leagues and on the teams, but isn't necessarily criminal. So criminal and deviant behavior and kind of how players, teams, leagues are impacted when they commit any kind of negative behavior. So I'm looking at kind of sport culture, sport law, and even some social movements and how those affect how the players are treated when they're accused of any kind of negative behavior, generally players, but also teams and leagues. And this can include behavior like violence against women. Excellent. I mean, well, kudos to you, you know, following your dream and, and you know, having the wherewithal to, to understand yourself. I feel like that's like the hardest part is finding what you're passionate about and how to how to like implement it and embed yourself into that passion every day. So I just want to commend you for that. Um, you said like you first kind of, you know, the, this stream of maybe not this the body of research itself, but the stream of thought for yourself was kind of coming into the light in the, you know, 2010s, et cetera. Do you think more traction or more awareness of, 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 you know, violence against women and deviant behavior of professional athletes came to like mainly because of social media or was there a peak at all during that time? Do you think it's like always been the same level and now we're just like everyday people are kind of bombarded with information because of social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever it is, or do you think there was a spike? A, it's a great question and something I've, I've gotten a lot, something I've looked into myself, something I'm actually looking into a little bit in, in a way right now uh, in hopefully a forthcoming paper. But 
it's a great question and i think it's like a lot of answers and i feel like this is the answer to basically everything when you're talking sociology is kind of a little bit of everything and a little bit of both yeah and so social media definitely has had an impact not only in how much people are um, aware of it and, and sort of told by told about it by mainstream media sources but also in terms of who has a voice so there's a lot more direct access to more people than there has been in the past where if a victim or a survivor of a sexual assault or domestic violence um, in the past they would maybe have had to speak to um, a lawyer and then they would maybe have to speak to a journalist who would have to cross-reference and see if um, the story a has weight and b will pass an editor and then only then and only then it will actually reach kind of the public ear whereas now there's just a lot more access for people everyday people to have a voice uh, on the internet and in kind of our social world. So I think that that's a big uh, factor in there. And then there's also just some flashbulb moments in specific leagues. So the main one that that I use in, in my study, because I'm looking at a lot of NFL players, like in the National Football League, is the Ray Rice scandal. And so that happened in 2014, in February 2014. And it's it's thought of as a watershed moment in the NFL and how they handle and how they talk about domestic violence and sexual violence against women. I don't know if um, that's actually the case in terms of, has it really had as big an impact yeah. as a lot of people say it has? That's sort of, like I said, the, the subject of a paper that I'm working on right now. I don't want to spoil the ending just yet. We can talk more about it if you want, but um, that's something that's also considered kind of a, a watershed moment. There's some other examples in the NFL, like the Greg Hardy case as well, which was very close uh, after that. So there have been these cases that have kind of uh, resulted in more media attention played to it. I also think that the Me Too movement has had a an impact as well. Yeah. The Me Too movement was more um, based on the celebrity world, the kind of uh, actors and music stars world, but it has permeated in sports as well, I think, to an extent. Yeah, and I feel like there's just a lot of overlap, you know, with people being in positions of authority or power um, between, you know, c celebrity issues or, or professional athletes. I feel like a lot of professional athletes are celebrities at the, you know, at the same token, mm -hmm. but. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's, it's often, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say absolutely. And it's, it's that kind of understanding of an issue like violence against women and, and of sexual violence that I think is really important when anyone's talking about it is the power dynamics mm -hmm. at play that exist between mm -hmm. professional athletes and um, survivors, as well as between, like we were saying, like other powerful people, whether that's in politics, media, um, music, mm -hmm. Hollywood, whatever it is, there are those power dynamics. There's the added element of like the physical power dynamic that often exists between well, an NBA, yeah. NFL, and NHL you know, baseball, soccer, whatever it may be, um, professional athlete who is, you know, training 24-7 and playing as a professional athlete and some of the, the survivors. So there's that power dynamic as well. But I think the, the the social and like social capital and political capital and voice that some of these athletes have and that their, their teams and leagues, which are very powerful and have tons of money and backing behind them, um, there is that that power differential that exists. And it's important to note. Yeah. Well, it falls into like kind of what I was going to ask you next. So, you know, we want to dive in a little bit into your paper, like 
it will ruin his career. Does violence against women really damage the careers of NBA players? And essentially, you found that having been arrested for acts of violence against women had no effect on a player's career, and you controlled, you know, for talent and et cetera. So what I was going to ask you is, like, do you think this is representative of, like, society as a whole, like, where sports is just kind of a microcosm, or do you think it's simply, like, another example of how men in positions of authority and power avoid consequences based on status. Now, you kind of addressed that a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I want to know, like, were you shocked to find these results and, and maybe break it down um, how you, you got to this result so, so people understand? You know, give me your abstract of your paper. And, you know, were, were you surprised at all that there were, you know, no effect on these players' careers? <laughs> Sadly, I definitely wasn't shocked. Uh, I wasn't too surprised by the result. I, I do want to stress that this was the first study that I, I did with this larger question. And the sample is only as big as it can be, which is the, the 30 players who've been arrested uh, between 2000 and I think it was 2018 at that point. So it's not a huge sample, but it is the entire sample of NBA players. And I do think it is both a microcosm of larger society and how uh, men with power are treated. I think it's also somewhat specific, maybe not to sport, but to high value employees in certain (laughs) professions, right? So it's not necessarily that it's specifically sport, but it's more that it's a, it's a matter, it's a labor relations matter too. I try to tell people this when they're talking about athletes and athletes are workers and our laborers not of course in the exact same way that you know someone working on a dock or even a freelance journalist is but they're still paid by larger um companies yeah. they're paid by the league to an extent but they're paid by you know their team that are often like multi-million and multi-billion dollar entities so but they're still workers they're still subject to the whim of what the owner what the general manager what the other teams decide to do I mean, sometimes even in collusion in certain cases, like the Colin Kaepernick case, yeah. but there are cases where like athletes are still to the whim of their, their employment is based on the whim of what their employers want to do to them. And because of that, even this kind of violence against women or any kind of negative behavior, how it's dealt with is still somewhat a labor relations issue in the sense that their value as workers is what's important here and how much that is actually hurt by such an accusation. And really it's it's a i think it's really an equation that's just done by it's a calculation is a better word for it that's done by teams and by leagues and how much is this player worth versus how much the backlash is worth and that's another part of the study that i'm working on currently and in the process of of publishing hopefully is actually speaking to nba and nfl you know, employees, people who cover the league, journalists, but also people who actually work for the teams and just asking sort of how they evaluate players who are accused of this kind of violence and this kind of stuff. So um, I do think it's both a microcosm, but I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that these players are valuable and their calculation that's made by teams, unfortunately, it's a very rational, very cold-hearted calculation of, okay, does is this going to blow over? Is this a huge issue? Did they did they actually commit this act? And if they did or didn't, doesn't really matter all that much. But if, I mean, it doesn't matter in terms of how they see it, but is this going to affect our team, our brand, how our fans see us? 
are they going to be suspended yeah. for a whole year? Or are they going to be suspended for one game? So these are all the kind of questions that go on. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. I think a lot of times the calculation sort of plays out that, well, you know, if, if this player was arrested, but they're still producing for us and everyone kind of forgets after they have a 30-point game, then yeah. I guess we can move on. Yeah, I mean, you led me in right to my next question was going to be like, how good does a player have to be to sort of get a, a pardon in the sense, you know? is is Does the literature, like, has anyone found a threshold or is this just, you know, this is what you're you're focusing on next in your research? But in other leagues, have they found, like, how good of a player do you have to be to, to kind of get away with anything? Yeah. And is you're, you're anyone replaceable? Exact, <laughs> yeah. You're asking the exact questions that I always ask. So that's how yeah. I get to my next topic. And I'm like, okay, I so why a, is this the case? I have a research background. <laughs> yeah. You have a research background, you have a sport background and uh, we all, we all have a life background, I think too. So we sort of see how these, uh, <laughs> these things might work. And yes, I'm trying to figure out right now, what is that threshold? And yeah. I think it's, I think, I don't want to paint all the teams with the same brush. I think there's absolutely a difference in team threshold. And that's what anybody who works for a team will tell you. The first thing they'll say is that every team has different thresholds for what they consider acceptable and unacceptable behavior. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I do think there's some pretty clear uh, thresholds. And I think people would be surprised at how low they are. I think that's one of the things. One of the things I'm looking at now with the NFL data, which allows for a lot more kind of analysis, just because sadly it's a lot bigger. A lot of that just having to do with the fact that NFL rosters are much bigger than NBA rosters. They're four times, basically about four times the size of them. So there's just more cases from which to look at the the data. So the data that I'm looking at is between 115 and 125 players. And just for a really quick um, kind of version of what I do to actually study this is that I match each player with a similar player who's basically that has similar statistics, similar age, similar, all the factors that would influence Mm -hmm. how long their career would normally be, who hasn't been arrested. And I think, okay, how are their Mm -hmm. careers different? And I do that for every player. And that's how I sort of conduct the analysis. So it's actually similar to kind of medical research when you have like a randomized control trial where you um, match play, you match different people who have the same kind of factors and see, okay, who's going to get this disease, who is going to respond well to the treatment, et cetera. So that's, um, sort of what I'm doing and I'm trying to figure out what that talent threshold is. Like I said, with from what I've seen so far, it's actually lower than you'd think. And you don't need to necessarily be a star player to still not be affected too negatively by any kind of arrest. Mostly it just means you can't be a completely replaceable player. So what I found is that yeah. even players who are just okay and they're you know solid, they they play, they're not just full-time backups, they have a role on the team, but they're not the stars you'd think of, especially in the NFL where there's very few stars. So a lot of these players are people that I would argue 95% of NFL fans have never heard about. Yeah. That leads to another question of, does that help? Does it help if the player doesn't yeah. have a big name? Right? It like if it's just like a... If you're like, sorry, I was going to say, it'd almost be worse if you're like kind of in the middle. Like you have enough name recognition that the media will pick up on it. Um, but you're not like the superstar, so you're not like fully protected. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And 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 uh, I don't know. If we, I, I promise to anyone listening, we didn't plan this, but that's actually sort of the next question I'm I'm asking, and that's research that has <laughs> yeah, that has no footprint uh, 
anywhere, really. Uh, there's no way anyone would really know that except for the few people who I've spoken to the research about. But I am looking at kind of the media <laughs> influence um, in a pretty yeah. simple way. But I'm trying to look at the media influence and when does it start mattering in terms of how much media coverage there is, what that media coverage is talking about. Is it better to be someone who's not talked about a lot at all? But if you're not talked about a lot at all, it probably means that you're not too valuable or too high performing of a player. So yeah, that's the next kind of question that I'm, I'm looking at. But yeah, there's all these different factors that go in, which also make it difficult to examine the talent threshold. A, per- a perfect example of this talent threshold versus media influence is, I'm not sure if you know of the player, but Johnny Manziel is um, yeah. was a very yeah. famous football player. He was a quarterback from Texas A&M who very high performing in college, really brash kind of style. Um, I would be, I would not, I don't want to avoid also saying that he was a, you know, white quarterback who was super athletic and had a big personality. I think that also influenced how famous he was. And he was not a very talented player, at least in terms of the productivity measures that we have in the NFL. So if you just looked at his talent and just kind of took the name away, you'd be like, well, this guy wasn't talented at all in terms of how he produced for the NFL. And yet he had such and such a result. But that's a case where you kind of have to also keep in mind the media attention that was around that because the media attention did not match Mm -hmm. his on the field at all well it's interesting that you bring up media because that's actually a question that i wanted to ask you later on but here we are we'll do it now um like i'm very curious because i worked more on the media side for a very long time not so much right now but and i've seen you know it's it, there's like this idea where it's like okay we got to separate these things you know we're never going to talk about the issues off the field or off the ice or whatever um because it has nothing to do with like their play uh, and, and I personally don't really agree with that narrative. So I'm curious to know, like, what role do you think sports media plays in kind of perpetuating, uh, kind of these stereotypes and helping maintain like outdated social constructs? Because I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're out there, we're on social media, we're reading what's being put out. I know pre- you said before, like the media maybe has a little less control because every, anyone can go to you know, on social media and talk about these issues now, but I'm curious to get your take, uh, take on that. Yeah, it's a great question. I think that the media has a huge role to play and I think it's a huge responsibility as well. I don't want to take away from the fact that it's a hard thing to talk about and not just in the sense that it's um, like sensitive subject matter, but it's, it's hard to properly um, give the correct context to discuss a player's performance when they also have these off the field, off the court, off the ice, kind of issues but I, that doesn't mean because it's difficult it, it has to be avoided and i think that there's also sadly and maybe this is my my cynicism coming out but i think that there's also sadly a market for this kind of uh social issues blind journalism where there is a yeah. segment of fans yeah. who don't want to hear about it and they don't care and they don't want to hear about it and they actively don't want to hear about it like they get angry yeah. if they do hear about it so it's yeah. I mean, I like to say this with a lot of social issues. There's always a place to have the wrong opinion. Like, and this is obviously me talking in terms of what I think is the wrong opinion, but there's always going to be a place to have the anti-progressive view. And yeah. I think that the problem is, is that we still have this kind of social climate where there is a place and there is a market for that kind of journalism that just avoids it completely. That we'll talk about Tyreek yeah. Hill as if he is just a fantastic football player and he's you know let's talk about his performance let's talk about he's how he's the fastest player in the nfl maybe ever possibly since mm-hmm. Deion Sanders probably and let's avoid the fact that he's been 
accused and even convicted of domestic violence, of hitting his child on multiple occasions. There's video of him from his college days. And when you talk to people about it, sometimes they'll be like, well, you know, he did drop in the draft. And I'm thinking, yeah, he also signed a multi-year, you know, I don't remember exactly what the contract is, but $80 million contract. And the problem is, is that when we avoid talking about it, the more time that goes on, the the, the, the more it disappears. So the more time that goes on, the more Tyreek Hill is known as this unbelievable weapon that the um, Chiefs use on offense. I, I really shouldn't have used the word weapon there. That was uh, maybe a Freudian slip of, of some sort. But, And I think it just clouds some of these issues. And the, the other issue, and I'm sorry if I'm rambling a bit with this, is just that no, no, it's, go ahead. it's an issue that needs to be talked about because it's also a complex issue. It's not as simple as this player was accused of violence, uh, therefore they're the worst and they should be cut. It's it's a more complicated yeah. issue than that, but that doesn't mean that we need to not talk about it. And when I'm saying it's more complicated, what I mean really here is that a lot of these players in the NFL and the NBA are black. And as we know, black men, especially young black men, are over-criminalized in the criminal justice system in North America, especially in the United States. And so the idea that they're necessarily always guilty of whatever crime that they've been accused of or arrested for, we know that that's not necessarily the case. And I'm not trying to say, of course, that this means that they're not committing these acts of violence. In some cases they are, in some cases maybe they're not, but we still need to properly talk about this issue and completely shielding it from debate or talk. That doesn't solve any of the issue. That doesn't properly address the survivors and the victims of this of these cases. And it also doesn't address the complex social dynamics that are at play here, where we have an over-criminalized group of athletes, of young black men, who are often over-criminalized and not treated fairly by the criminal justice system, and a group of, in most cases, in the high majority of cases, women who are also not given the proper justice in terms of violence against women issues. So you have these two groups that are not treated properly in the criminal justice system, and that needs to be talked about and fleshed out. And if we completely avoid talking about it, we accomplish none of it. The people who hold negative stereotypes about both survivors and them speaking out don't hear anything about it and can have their negative kind of opinions keep festering. And the same kind of racist opinions can continue to to exist as well. But we need to properly contextualize a lot of what's going on. Yeah, and I think you said it best because as much as I would love to see more mainstream sports media outlets address these issues properly, they also need to educate themselves. And I'm not sure a lot of them are equipped to talk about these issues and put them in the context of of the broader society. Um, I think, like personally, I think we're we're moving in a direction where we're going to see more, I guess, progressive uh, takes. Uh, in on on the mainstream side, anyways, like I think of Shireen Ahmed now working for TSN Sports, and that's that's huge because easily ten years Absolutely. ago you wouldn't have seen someone like her uh, taking on that role, and it's so it seems like slowly but surely there's a bit more of an openness towards integrating people who can properly address issues like this. Um, Moving on, you know, we we know you also study masculinity and social media and cancel cut culture on, on Twitter, and you look at responses to athlete misogyny so you know we feel like this is particularly been relevant these days with barstool sports and i'm sure twitter is blowing up with the latest demonstration of you know resource disparity between men and women within march madness i mean that blew up yesterday right um Mm -hmm. so 
you know, can you maybe tell us what your thoughts are on on these latest developments? It's kind of like a broad question for you, but I mean, this is this is happening right now, right? And and I feel like Twitter is just constantly a place of like ex- explosive discussion sometimes <laughs> on these topics. So we just kind of want your thoughts on it. Yeah, it's uh, it's like you're setting me up for for a one timer, kind of in the top of the circle there. It's an easy <laughs> one. On. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's. <laughs> When I'm talking about the market for negative opinions, a lot of that is barstool. To be to be frank, um, there's other places yeah. where that exists as well, and there is yeah, that market. And I think barstool hits that market. It, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, you said it's, it, yeah, and I was like barstool. <laughs> yeah, it's it's barstool, but it's it's also a lot of like like smaller journalists as well, and smaller news yeah. outlets as well. And I think the the fact that we're siloed a little bit it hurts that in a sense. You know, my Twitter purposely mm-hmm. is not filled with barstool my social media feeds the places i go are not they're not barstool the yeah. same way they're not you know fox news they're not breitbart so we silo ourselves a little bit so that we don't see um a yeah. lot of that but that market still definitely exists and yeah it's it's sad on one hand but at the same time i think it's important that we understand that that is out there and there's there's still a need for the the shireen ahmed's uh, of the world, I'm a huge mm-hmm. fan of their podcast and just the work that that they so do. Are we. Down. <laughs> yeah, and it's just it's still so necessary because there still exists this sport media sport. I think it's hard. It's, it's either you say it's a sport industrial complex or it's a sport media industrial complex. I'm stealing another term here that's popular in the uh, end of sport podcast which is another fantastic podcast, um, mm. Derek Silva, Nathan mm-hmm. Common-Lamb, and uh, Joanna Mellis. And they're often taking on a lot of these big players as well. And I think one of the important things we have to realize here is that it's often a fight between progressive people who want to see change in sport and those who are really have a vested interest in some of the negative things in sport continuing, right? Like if there's certain negative systems that, positively impact individual people and their jobs are sort of reliant on those people and sorry on those um on those negative systems then it's often that we'll see that those those people hold those views and they they prop up those in power in those systems and we have to be able again to interrogate that and to understand that yeah there's these Mm. people talking about how great the ncaa is right and how it's helping out all these kids and it's giving them scholarships but we have to understand that their job is reliant on them saying that their access is reliant on them saying that they're not going to be able to speak to coach K at Duke mm-hmm. or to, you know, Roy Williams at Carolina. And they're not going to be able to speak to those people. If all of a sudden they're spouting off about how there's some very negative power dynamics at play in the NCAA and how players are largely black and brown bodies are exploited in these systems. So it's just important again, that you realize to an extent why these sport media companies sometimes have the opinions they do and how they're a bit hamstrung as well. Like they don't have the luxury is the right word, but they don't have the ability to properly speak truth to power because their, their jobs, their money is a lot of it's tied up with those same exploitative systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's such a good point. And it's it's one of those things where I think there's just so much that we don't kind of see like on the outside anyways. So it's kind of nice to talk to somebody who can explain these dynamics and kind of break it down because we don't always think about these issues in, the, in that same way. Um, 
just moving topics just a little bit um something I wanted to ask you earlier on actually is you know we often talk you talked about different athletes and the violence that they've done against women um and like we'll see the narrative is often you know the blame is often placed on the women okay people will always assume like the worst of the woman like she's in it for the money or she's trying to get back to at him or whatever like some insane reason they'll do whatever they can to kind of remove the blame from the athlete um but like you know I feel like almost you know we never see it happen like in the sense that like the athlete kind of leaves unscathed but you don't ever hear anything about like yeah she was actually in it for the money like factually speaking like this is this is what happened so like I'm curious to know like why do you think that narrative continues to persist despite it never being true (laughs) that's another another really good question and one I wish I had a better answer for uh I'll tell you that this is a good this is a big reason why I started to do this research. I want to directly confront the idea and the expectation that that accusations are so detrimental to a person's career and that's why like it's such a big problem that um women accuse men of of doing these things cuz it ruins their life blah 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 etc. all these all these all these nonsense reasons and first of all to show that that isn't the case and I think What's important to understand here is, first of all, I always want to tell people that false accusations are exceptionally rare. I'm talking like 2% of yeah. cases, right? So yeah. the idea it's a classic situation where we're worried about the, um, I always get these confused, but we're worried about the, the false positive when really we need to be worried about the false negative, which is the fact that there's way more women who do get yeah. um, assaulted or harassed and don't speak out. But the idea that we're worried mm-hmm. about the 2% or it's like two to 5% depending on the study of false accusations and not worried about the uh, thousands of women and thousands, millions of women, I would argue who are not speaking out because of the, first of all, just the fear that, that there'll be retribution on the part of the abuser or on the part of people in their lives. The idea that the police won't actually do anything, that the criminal justice won't actually give them any sort of justice. So I think that just dispelling that myth and speaking the truth about those things is important to do. Why it persists mm-hmm. I think, is a bit of a a broader question that has a lot to do with not to not to use the the academic buzzwords, but they do apply here. A lot to do with patriarchy and the constant mm-hmm. and enduring um, control of society by men for men. And I think that this narrative is helpful for demonizing women and also for excusing men of these kind of acts and just excusing men's behavior in other spheres as well. So you see a lot of the same stereotypes and false narratives about women accusing men of different things. They use those narratives are reliant on the same explanations of women's behavior that are used in other spheres as well. So it's used the same kind of women are overly emotional. It's used in the same way to talk about, um, why you wouldn't hire a woman for a certain position, why they wouldn't receive such and such promotion, why they wouldn't be good in such and such role. So I think that those Mm -hmm. stereotypes are all useful too because they cross domains. So you can use the stereotype. If that narrative persists, then we can use that same thing and that can be weaponized again in a different space against people with less social power as well. So I think that's a huge part of it. Also in terms of the overly emotional part, if you want to see overly emotional, why, why don't you watch Tom Izzo? Uh, the other day, the coach of Michigan State absolutely lighting up his <laughs> player while they're walking to the uh, halftime. Yeah. And just keep in mind that this is technically a uh, 
technically a student at the university. So if anyone ever talks about how they're just students and they're not actually professional players, try to imagine a professor talking and getting up into the face and and then pushing um, a student in a classroom. Mm -hmm. Just try to picture that and then tell me that, yeah, they're just students. Don't worry about it. They're not, uh, they're not athletes. They're not workers. That's a different point, but the, I always like to, to remind Mm -hmm. people that the overly emotional thing is absolutely, it's based in nothing. It's actually based in kind of like Victorian ideas of white woman frailty and, and different myths about the way women are, which are just, we found time and time again, like you, like you both said, we found time and time again are completely based in nothing. So it's important to to call those out when we see them. But I think the persistence of it is really, it's a patriarchy-based thing mostly. And I think the fact that we can use those stereotypes across domain to hurt people with less social and political capital. Yeah. And I think also, you know, people don't really understand the psychology behind, like, coming forward, you know, as a victim. I- I don't know if you guys have read, like, Know My Name. It's Chanel Miller's um, biography with Brock Turner. It's incredibly good, and I, I suggest everyone reading it because it's very difficult. Like, her life was not easy after, you know, coming forth with a simple accusation where if you got, like, hit by a car, it would be very easy to say that person hit me, like, struck me with their car. You know, there seems to be no question about it. And, you know, they, they say their statement and get on with their lives. And I think uh, as a society, we need kind of a better understanding of like the psychology of coming forward and, mm-hmm. and, you know, the consequences to, to these individuals' lives that like reciprocate throughout their lifetime. So I think there needs to be some clarity there. But um, Daniel, I agree with you. It's, it's like deep rooted into patriarchal. Uh, society etc it makes me so sad honestly but yeah it's one of the harder things about doing this work yeah i I honestly (laughs) commend you for it because yeah it's it's, it can't be easy some days you know but for sure and moving towards like a solution go sorry daniel go ahead no go 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 (laughs) i was just gonna say like moving towards like you know maybe solutions or ways to improve like what approach would you take based on your, your research um, to better educate, whether it be like institutions or athletes themselves, whether it be like boys, men's within the locker room, outside the locker room, at the school? Like, have you found anything in your research as, as, as far as how to best educate individuals on this subject? I think it's there's a few different ways. It's not directly my research, but I've definitely come across it and read quite a bit about it. And There's a lot of work being done at the college level to try to educate away certain myths, whether that's like um, men's support and women's support of of rape myths, for example. So there's work done on consent and there's work done on affirmative consent, which is really important. One of the issues is I think that the the, um, success and the efficacy of these programs is sort of still up for debate, depending on who you ask, even scholars literally working on the same data set of like, here are the results before the study, here are the results after. They still come up with different um, answers to the question of whether this was actually effective. I think though, honestly, for me, it starts way before that. So I think that a lot of times at the college level, you're already getting, you're already too far. So people, we're, we're picking up so many messages about how the world works, about how different people work, about how social relationships work before we turn, I don't know, 15. 
well, well before that as well. I mean, none of us uh, grew up in the social media age. Like I wasn't, you know, 10 years old on TikTok, but mm-hmm. kids now, the kids now are getting all these messages about how the world works so early. And the earlier that we can start talking about these things, the way they should be talked about. So we can talk about, you know, power relationships. We can talk about stereotypes about men or women. We can start educating our children um, at younger ages to actually, to not behave in certain gender specific ways. I mean, there's research about preschool children where women are mm-hmm. um, women, <laughs> where young girls are are told to, not told to, but are indirectly um, made to feel smaller and they're reprimanded if they take up too much space, if they speak without raising their hand, if they um, talk too much, whereas the same behavior is not only not reprimanded, but actually um, commended in boys. And that kind of different behavior, that that stuff already starts leading to these differences yeah. in how men and women treat each other and how they think about um, their own gender identity and how they think about um, the gender identity of, of others. And I, I, this is what does give me hope. And I think it's the, the hopeful inclusivity of younger generations. I think that as much as there's this weird um, millennial, Gen X, Gen Z kind of rifts on the internet, I think a lot of those are overblown, but I think that, <laughs> yeah. I think that there is this, there's a lot of good that we can see coming up from the next generation where I'm hoping that we're going to get to the point that it's not cool to, you know, be a bully in high school. It's not cool to speak misogynistically about women. It's not cool to be homophobic. And I think that I, I think that there are differences happening there, but I think a lot of that is reliant on people in positions of power setting that agenda correctly, right? And that's what we yeah. were talking about when we're talking about media and we're talking about political commentators, sport commentators, whoever's whoever's creating the culture, who's help creating the culture that we live in, they need to provide the correct context and a correct understanding of why people act the way they do, um, why certain things are happening, what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior. Uh, I think that that's where sport has a huge part to play. I mean, the idea that sport changed the world, I've heard uh, my partner, Maddie, say this so many times. The idea that sport changes the world is a nice one, but it's really more that athletes change it because it's rare that the sport institutions and the systems actually approve of the players who are speaking out against certain issues or are trying to change the game, right? Like we all like to talk about how Muhammad Ali, or for example, was this amazing political activist, but it wasn't the sport of boxing that was an amazing political activist. It was Muhammad Ali. He was actually not liked by boxing. Same with uh, John Carlos or, or Jesse Owens or Jackie Robinson. It wasn't the institution that was like, all right, let's change and let's be better. No, it's specific athletes. But that's why there's such a part for um, athletes to play in terms of making it cool to be good and cool to be a socially aware person, a, an anti-racist person. Like when I see someone like LeBron James, to go away from the the championship-based debates of, of LeBron versus Jordan, he's just a really incredible spokesperson for young people. And I don't agree with all of his politics. I'm significantly further left than than he is on a lot of issues. But at the same time, the idea that he can speak out and have this gigantic platform and mm-hmm. espouse really positive views and, and be on the right side of the, the right side, like the correct side um, of a lot of issues. I think that that's incredibly, incredibly valuable. And the more that we educate our people at a very young age, so before college, the more we um, 
have athletes who are willing and able to speak out. It's just, it's, I think that that's a huge potential positive. And I think we're starting to see that a little bit with some of the social media research that I'm doing, where you do see pushback against misogynistic behavior. You do see people speaking out against issues. And there is always, of course, the very, very, very vocal minority or the very vocal, you know, far right groups out there. But I think hopefully with time, they can be drowned out to an extent. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, speaking to what Maddie said, like athlete changing, athletes changing the sport. Um, I think of like Naomi Osaka, you know, she's such a young player and has been, I feel like such, such a positive force, you know, she, she takes no shit. She, she stands up for what she believes in and it's so like refreshing. I mean, there's been countless of women before her, but I think just like her being so young and, and having that knowledge and that courage, I think is admirable and you know, I'm very hopeful. And it's inspiring. For, for young it's inspiring yeah. too. It's inspiring for. I mean, it for does help. She's all like, types. yeah. And I was like, it does help. She's like insanely good at tennis too. But you know, <laughs> I think it. it <laughs> but it says a lot, though. You know, her taking no crap in in all aspects of life, like whether it be social justice or like just, you know, I think she just posted. Um, she took some pictures of herself when she was at the Australian Open for one of the magazines and she was just like, see, I took these photos. Like, I don't know. I think it was like she's just breaking so many barriers in, in so many different realms and it's it's really refreshing. I've become a huge I, I fan. Think, yeah. No, I mean, I'm a huge Osaka fan as well. And I think that that's also a testament to some of the women that have come before her. So like you talk about her, I think she's sort of the closest thing we have to a torch taker from to, from Serena Williams. It's basically impossible mm-hmm. to fill those shoes and to take that torch, but she's the best athlete of our generation. But at the same time, Serena's also been someone who's been unapologetically oh, yeah. herself for so long. And I think Serena's also an interesting test case because she's been so dominant at tennis for so long that we've actually seen how societal attitudes have changed towards her over the years, right? Like things that she yeah. did that were completely fine in the mid 2000s were treated a specific way that hopefully aren't treated the same way now so i think that we see that kind of evolve and in terms of athlete activism and some of the things we're seeing i i was the examples that immediately came to mind were some of the older ones which were men's athletes but the truth is is that women's athletes are at the forefront of all of these issues i mean the WNBA this summer was just an incredible testament and example of how to speak Mm -hmm. truth to power like you think about something like the atlanta dream like this team these women were wearing vote warnock shirts to literally oust their (laughs) team owner from her undeserved senate position which she was never elected for let's keep that in mind she was literally appointed there because she was rich uh and a republican but they basically voted out their own team owner and if that's not speaking truth to power i don't know what is and that is from these women who are not in the same financial position as a lot of the men's athletes, right? Like they have a huge amount to lose by doing something like that. But they were like, no, we need to take a stand for something we really believe in. If you don't like it, that's your problem. You're going to miss out on a lot of amazing basketball. And we're going to be ourselves. We're going to do it. And that's who teams and leagues and athletes should be taking their, their cues from. And that's the kind of thing that's, I think, so inspiring even as a someone who studies sociology of sport who studies all these things for me that's what gives me a lot of 
motivation and inspiration sometimes because there are these athletes who are willing to take a stand and make a change. And the WNBA is, I think, I'm hoping only going to get more popular um, if for no other reason than the basketball is just amazing. Like it's, if you like basketball and you're a hoop head, like yeah. there's no reason you should be not watching, especially it's like the summer. There's no, um, there's no NBA going on. Just watch W. It's amazing basketball, but it's also like, they're not going to be hurt. And in many cases, I think they're helped by some of their stands. So that's very inspiring for me at least. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And I'm glad you brought up the WNBA because that's the first, that's the first kind of group of people I thought of. Uh, who are kind of filling that role of, of using their voices to talk about issues outside of sports or that, you know, maybe not outside of sports, more like that they're, that are related to sports that aren't often talked about. Um, I'm curious to know, because uh, I know that you're an assistant men's basketball coach at Champlain College, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I just, like, I'm curious to know, has your work as a researcher had any impact on, on the way you approach uh, your, your coaching? either directly or indirectly yeah absolutely i haven't been um as as busy this year with coaching just because of the pandemic of course but yeah i've coached men's and women's basketball collegiate university for a long time and it's been mm-hmm. um something that's definitely informed my research and it's informed my research and my research has informed some of that work i think coaching men's and women's has also made me it gives you sort of an yes it's anecdotal but an anecdotal view of some of the differences between how men and women athletes are socialized. And one of the things I always love to to tell people is that almost every men's basketball player thinks that they're twice as good as they are. And a lot of women's basketball players think they're half as good as they actually are. So you just have Mm -hmm. these issues where with men's basketball players, you have to tell them to, you know, like, maybe that's not the shot you want to be taking. You know, maybe you're not want to drive that, maybe move the ball one more. Like this isn't, you know, your job is more to be a role player here. Whereas with women, it's like, hey, like, this is your shot. I've seen you, you know, make 60% of these in practice. Like, you need to step up and take this shot. This is yours. Like, you need to have the confidence to do this and this and that. And you're there and you have the ability, but you need to get there. And I think, so some of that you really see um, coaching men's and women's basketball. Obviously, that's a a general statement. There are many very, very confident uh, women's basketball players as well. But yeah, it's definitely changed my coaching also in terms of, especially with men's basketball players, is trying to nip some of the negative behavior that you still see and some of the casual sexism, casual misogyny. I will admit that I definitely yeah. was not um, as good as, at that as I, when, especially when I was younger, at kind of calling out that behavior. And sometimes I still miss it and it's hard to because it's so ingrained, you know, little yeah. things mm-hmm. like players, uh, um, derogatorily like when they're calling in uh, calling the rest of the team in for like a huddle saying like oh come on let's go ladies things like that are just they're so common that people don't even really say anything about it or don't even think about it and Mm -hmm. that's the kind of behavior that you just you know has a negative impact and it's the kind of thing where i think a lot of the players are just they're not educated yet on how negative that could be um when they're still young in a lot of cases like these are still 17 18 19 year olds in CJP, but it's still something that is up to us as as educators as coaches as people who work in sport to to change those kind of ingrained bad habits yeah no for sure and it's like like you said just things little things that seem so harmless on the surface like okay ladies let's go like 
I feel like uh, even myself in the last year, because women do that too, right? I was going like, to say, like, we fall into those traps too. Like, yeah. I definitely, just, yeah. things just come out because you haven't really, you know, when you're talking, you don't necessarily think through every word you, you say, right? And it's just falling into those habits. And I mean, this is where it just embodies what you were saying earlier, Daniel. Like, these things start extremely young. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, There's... no, they, they really do. I've seen a lot of sexist attitudes from women. I've seen racist attitudes from people of color. I've seen, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. the identity doesn't necessarily preclude you from those negative behaviors. And like I said, a lot of times it's not even people's fault in the sense that this is the world that we grow up in. If you've been taught and you've learned and you still engage in those behaviors or engage in them kind of out of spite, then it's your fault. But (laughs) the beginning, like you said, it just kind of comes out. There's negative language. There's negative behaviors that come out. And especially it's funny because I'll see men's basketball players who you will never find bigger fans of the women's basketball team out of a different of a specific school than the men's basketball team and the same way the other way men's and women's basketball teams have a specific kind of kinship that is really a wonderful thing that is that exists in sport every school i've worked at it exists where they are just they pull for each other like nobody else and it's really like it's a, like i said it's just a fantastic thing that exists and yet you still see that negative language so it sees how in, you can see really how ingrained it is because these men's basketball players appreciate respect love the women who are playing in the other who are the women's basketball team in their own school in their own school in their own league whatever um but yet that language still kind of comes out sometimes and it's it's sad in a way but it also gives me hope and it's also uh, it's something that i will admit that i will use as a way to try to explain to people that like if you if you mr armchair basketball watcher don't think this is good basketball but draymond green does and loves watching women's basketball, then I think I'm going to go with, you know, Draymond Green. I think I'm going to go with the players who really understand the game and love the game and how much, if they respect women's basketball, I think that maybe you should too. I also think that most people, I just say like, just watch one game before you start. And this applies to other women's sports as well. Women's hockey, uh, women's soccer. I just know women's basketball the best. That's why I talk about it so much, but I just tell people like, just watch literally one game and come back to me. And if you still hold that view, well, I mean, that's your problem, but I think you'll be, uh, pleasantly surprised if you hold these kind of ingrained negative stereotypes. And that happens all the time. Like, especially when I was working. So Mel and I, we first met when um, I was working with Lee Canadian. And so oftentimes, like every single fan, like I'd talk to, they'd be like, yeah, I just watched one game and I was hooked. Like it literally just takes one game to realize like, oh yeah, no, this is, this is really good, you know? And like, there's no reason to believe that it wasn't in the first place, but like you said, just go check it out once any, any sport, any women in sport, like you'll, you'll get hooked. And like you said, if you don't, well, that's, that's too bad, (laughs) but Daniel, we could keep talking. I mean, we're almost like we're nearing an hour, but it went by so, so fast. Um, before we let you go, I mean, earlier on, you mentioned the Me Too movement. Um, and I, I was curious to know, you know, obviously, we 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 still see these issues in Hollywood, like it's not solved, you know, but we're seeing a lot more men face consequences um, for their actions. You know, I think of guys like, uh, I mean, I'm blanking on, on the main director's name at the moment. I'm like, Harvey, something, Harvey, something. Weinstein. <laughs> Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's nice to see that these these monsters are facing uh, actual punishment for what they've done. But 
you know, on the side, on the sports side, I feel like we're still a little while away from seeing something like that happen. I mean, like most recently there's Houston Texans, Deshaun Watson, who's facing so many allegations for uh, misconduct against women. So I'm just, I'm curious to know, you know, how far are we from seeing a similar shift in sports? You know, how far do you think we are from seeing a shift in sports? The same shift that we've, we're starting to see or, or that we've been seeing in, in Hollywood. It's a, it's a good question. I think it's very sport dependent in something like yes, the NFL. Sure. I think we're extremely far just, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of this has to do with um, not to make everything a political issue, but, but to, has to do yeah. with the political representation of the fan bases in the different sports. I still think in general sports is quite far from it, especially men's professional sports. I want to be clear here too, that what we're talking about here is a men's professional sports problem really um, when we say yeah. professional sports, we often just mean men's professional sports, which is not correct. So this is men's professional sports that we're talking about. The WNBA does not have a domestic violence problem. You know, the NWSL does not have this issue. So yes, in terms of men's professional sports, I think we're quite far from it. And I think a lot of it is unfortunately um, a it's a money problem. It's a capitalism problem. I'm very proud of myself. I've only said capitalism, I think twice in this entire podcast, which for me, which for me is like a really, as a, as a very, um, as a Marxist, it's very hard to avoid saying that word and blaming these things on that because that's, that is actually the root cause of it. But yeah, that, that is really the problem that we have with these sports is that like, as long as there's one team that's willing to take this person, that team will have a, an advantage if that player is a super high performing player. If you yeah. look at the dollars and cents of it and you look at the wins and losses of it, the Kansas City mm-hmm. Chiefs made an all-time great selection when they picked Tyreek Hill in, I believe, the third round, right? They got a first-round level talent in the third round because they were the team that was willing to say, yeah, there's a video of this man assaulting his pregnant his pregnant girlfriend in college, but he's an unbelievable talent and we're going to pick him up. And as long as that need to make money exists. And as long as fans care more about the result on the field than what happens off of it, I just don't see this really changing to a huge level because these teams, as they'll tell you, as any player after they've been traded or even before they've been traded, will tell you these sports are a business. We are in North America. These sports are a business. They need to make money. Teams need to make money. And if they can find an Mm -hmm. advantage, they will find it. And Mm -hmm. until fans make decisions with their, uh, with their dollars to change to the, the, to yeah. not support teams that are doing this. I don't think it'll change. And unfortunately I hate to, I don't want to blame fans for this though, because I think that that's a huge problem that we have in society more generally of blaming systemic societal issues on individual actors who don't really have a say. So I don't think it's actually like fans fault, but I think it's that, that teams don't see their role in society as existing really beyond their ability to make money and employ people because they make money. And that's why just every time I hear about a a sports team asking for public money for a stadium, because the team is a public good for the city and they bring this to the city. And it's like, (laughs) you, you bring all that stuff incidentally, right? Like it's nice that those positives exist, but they only exist incidentally. And it's your goal is to win games coaches stay on because they win games general managers stay on because they win games and until that kind of uh prerogative and that kind of responsibility changes to something that encompasses more than just winning games but to being a public good in society and hoping to change things i don't see a huge um possibility of change to end on a more positive note i do think that 
that ability for fans to influence teams does exist. And I think that fans are getting smarter. Fans are getting not smarter necessarily, but I don't, because I don't think they've changed in any conceivable way that way, but more educated, more aware of the problems. And with that, hopefully more able to make these big decisions. Also, I'm sorry for like monopolizing this conversation quite a bit. I've realized that when you were saying it's 50 no, minutes, this I'm like, is, wow, I have talked a lot. Oh my God, no. <laughs> this is what it's about. This is what yeah. it's about. You're the expert, Daniel. and It's more like for Mel and I to be like, okay, we could actually just keep recording all morning, but we got to rein it in. <laughs> it's not you. It's us being like, okay, we got to just stop asking questions. No. But I mean, class, you're class, so right. Classic dude who joins the podcast and just keeps talking. No. And talking, and talking. <laughs> you're the guest. You're not, you're not just a dude. You're a we guest. want you to talk if you didn't but, talk mel and i would be like uh, okay what are we gonna what are we gonna do what are we gonna be do? terrible guess <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, but you're so well, right like you. it would be nice if institutions could take that initiative you know and and not take on the these players etc and overlook the fact that they're talented but fans do have the power to kind of strong arm these institutions and in saying you know we will no longer support you if you continue to kind of perpetuate this problem. So yeah, I, I don't know which yeah. is going to come first, unfortunately. And I think it's going to be a little bit of both um, over time. Quick, but I, one, I do... Go ahead. Yeah. One quick anecdote that, sorry, it just, it's a perfect kind of example of this is, is I would interview a lot of people who worked for teams and without revealing anything about it, without revealing anything about the teams or the people, I would often have the question where I would ask them, like, do you think fans and media influence uh, you as a team or an organization and then they would answer no immediately and then talk about it in a way that showed that the answer was yes so i'd be like no no, no we, don't, we don't consider their opinion at all we we have our own internal ways um also though you know if fans are upset about it then that'll change the calculation that we do and i'm like okay but okay, so <laughs> okay, you're good. saying no but you're explaining <laughs> yes so i don't know how to properly code this as a response but because like you know you're you're it's like your words are saying one thing but then your actions and your explanations are saying the other so yeah uh, I think, yeah uh, i think it's a little more common than teams will give it credit for because teams hated the idea hate to have the idea out there that like they read the press clippings but the idea that people don't read their press clippings about themselves i think is a little silly everybody googles themselves right so uh, yeah no and i mean i think i think it's just like you need more fans to move the needle just a little bit. You know what I mean? If like one fan's upset, it's probably not going to change much. But if you could get ev- like if you could get everyone on board not to show up for a game, they're going to listen. You know what I mean? So you just you need more volume on the fan side to to I think cause any, um, I guess monumental change in that sense. Daniel, to to end the podcast, we've ended this question with like our women's hockey. Monday guess and I kind of like it and I think it, it's appropriate with you since we didn't talk about the pandemic but you know what have you learned through this pandemic and I guess what do you, what do you hope is gonna come out of this in a positive way like what change do you hope people will continue to implement in their lives or what what has society learned from the pandemic I would just want like your two minute thoughts on on how this pandemic has affected you and what you hope for the future. Uh, I hope what I've learned is that no matter how good our technology gets, humans need physical social interaction. And I think that that can hopefully have a lot of good effects in the 
future. I think that there's been a heavy push in the last, I don't know, 15 years to to make a lot of things online, to make things just less in-person, easier, more accessible, which is great. And I think things should be accessible online, especially for people with um, disabilities who can't make it to certain places or who are just hamstrung by time, whatever it can be. But I think it's shown us how important real human physical contact is. And I hope that that has an influence on people wanting to see other people and wanting to help out people in their communities and wanting to be um, with each other. I think the other very positive thing that can happen is the idea that this this could have been an email or this could have been not a meeting. I think we're realizing how many meetings don't need to actually exist. Yeah. So hopefully that can, can, can cut some of those extra times and maybe yeah. people can work a little less, I would hope. So I think that maybe less meetings would be something that we've seen can exist and hopefully more time for the things we actually like doing. So those are some of my kind of positive hopes about the pandemic. I also have quite a few negative things that I've realized about people based on this pandemic or that maybe crystallize my opinions about people, but we should end on a positive note. So I'm not going to talk about those. <laughs> I think hopefully we've realized that people have a need for uh, physical and social interaction mm -hmm. with others and that will actually um, try to have that. And maybe I think also that we don't dislike people as much as we think. So I think there's a huge like internet phenomenon yeah. where people are like, I just love to be at home in my Snuggie and not talking to people because people suck. And yeah. while that's true of a lot of people, I think we do like being around others, you know, and doesn't have to yeah. be all day, every day, but we need that. And we're seeing how much we need that right now. So I look forward to meeting lots of people and seeing lots of people when this um, subsides, hopefully, or when it gets just a little bit better. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think like, you know, workplaces learning, we need fewer meetings, but also allowing some people to work from home, you know, is going to allow them the time to spend physically with their families, et cetera, or friends and, and waste less time commuting or, I don't know, working, late, yeah. et cetera, just more productive in the space that that's conducive to their work. It depends. It's not for everyone, but I, I really hope to see that positive change as well, Daniel. And yeah, I too to hope clear, like it's gone. I was just say I too hope that this is gonna subside soon too, because I am in need yeah. of physical interactions. <laughs> exactly. I mean more time for us, by the way, to be clear, should mean more time for doing the things we want to do. Let's not use that extra hour of no commute to be to do more work at work because yeah. everybody works too much as it is. So please use that extra yeah. time to read and play a sport and be with your kids and call your mom. So yeah, that's my exactly. last little PSA. <laughs> call your moms. <laughs> call, you always, that's anyone. always the, the advice. Call your parents. That's always the best advice to anyone. If you haven't, no, I mean, I if you have recently, just call your parents. You know, reach out, reach out to anyone you love because people exactly need it, especially right now. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's been a true pleasure. We learned a lot and, you know, I wish you all the best with your research. I can't wait to see what comes out of it because I have so many more questions. This is the problem when you find something you're kind of like now I'm picked. My interest is picked. I'm interested and I have just endless questions bouncing around my head. So I hope I hope to read about it sometime over the next couple of years. But thank you, Daniel. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, having this time.
subscribe to our podcast, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Balado Quebec. Yes, show us some love on Facebook and Instagram at Away From The Play and on Twitter at Mel underscore and underscore Saffs. You can also follow us individually if you'd like um, on Twitter at Saffs underscore on the go and for myself at Mel The Rock. Special thanks to Matsu Brutus for the music and Naimaloo for our logo. Give them a follow on Instagram. We hope to see you next week. <laughs>